Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we may understand your word and the events of history and how they speak of Jesus and what it means for us today. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now when I was growing up, my fondest memories were always of the December holidays. Now it was the longest holidays and what I used to do is my family used to always go to Penang every December. And during those times, it wasn't like a whole stretch of uh, hotels at Batu Ferengi Beach, right? It was that only one hotel that I remember. I can't even remember the name of the hotel now. Something like Lone Star Hotel or Lone Pine Hotel. And this is the only picture I could find of it. And you can see how rustic it is. This is my great-grandmother. And we used to go there every year. Now, Christmas was always in December, but my family was not really, a Christ- really Christians at the time. But I do remember Christmas being an especially joyous time. So I remember going to my grandmother's house, and uh, if you go to my grandmother's house, you see they have these grill doors, and my grandmother was a teacher at uh, ACS school at the time. And I think she had lots of lots of uh, ex-pupils who would write her Christmas cards. I know that that's not really, not really a practice that we have anymore, but it used to be <laughs> that in those days, people would send Christmas cards, and, and my grandmother used to have hundreds of, literally, of Christmas cards, and she would put it on the grill over there on the door and basically the whole grill will be just full of Christmas cards. I don't know whether that's something that your family might have practiced in the past, but that was something that my grandmother did and I was always amazed at how many Christmas cards she had. And we would wake up on um, Christmas morning, so this is the Christmas tree that we had, this was the Christmas day I think, and we would always have lots of presents and it was the, uh, the time where we would have an extended family lunch and one of the few times of the year where my parents would actually turn on the air conditioning in the living room. So I always associate December and Christmas with uh, good memories and joy. And I was reflecting on the topic of joy and joyfulness and happiness and happy times. And I was wondering, when is the last time that you've really felt joy in your life? Where you really felt happiness, genuine happiness and joyfulness in your life? I think that in the world that we live in today, we, are, <clears throat> we have many, many choices. And we have many, many choices to enjoy things, to take pleasure in things like a good meal or a good movie, to have fun at a party. But enjoying something is very different from having joy. I think we will admit that, isn't it? I mean, you can enjoy a nice cup of coffee, but you might not be really joyful in your heart. Having fun uh, at a party uh, it's not the same as being joyful. And having pleasure, taking pleasure in something, uh, maybe just going to the beach, you know, taking pleasure in that, is different from happiness. And I just wonder, where is the last time that you really felt a deep, genuine joy in your heart? Because I think for us, the Bible actually tells us that uh, Christmas, uh, that Jesus Christ coming as a baby, is an event for genuine joy in our heart. And I think often when we think of Christianity, we think of it as just a set of intellectual propositions that we believe in. We believe in this, we believe in that, we believe in these things. But actually the Bible tells us, as we see in this passage, that there is an emotional element to our faith. That means we derive joy, great joy, from knowing about the facts of Jesus Christ. So it begins in today's passage in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, with a bit of a, a background to the gospel before it is actually told to us. It says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, 
just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now what it begins in verse 1 to 5 is a corroboration and confirmation, a verification of the facts of what is to follow. Just like a newspaper reporter checking on the facts of a story, interviewing sources, or a detective canvassing the neighborhood and speaking to eyewitnesses, or like a lawyer cross-examining the key eyewitness. So Luke tells us in verse 1 to 5 that he has gone to great lengths and great trouble to speak to people, to follow the evidence and to confirm the evidence. It's a bit like this movie I watched just last week called The Program. Uh, at the Lido. I, I don't think any of you have watched it because I think it's only shown in two cinemas in the whole of Singapore. But it was about the famous uh, Tour de France cyclist, uh, Lance Armstrong. He won the Tour de France seven times, but it was later found out to be a, a drug cheat and a doper. And it tells the story of the reporter who, against opposition, kept following the evidence. He just kept following the evidence and he was relentless in the pursuit of the evidence so he finally got to the truth. And I think that's what Luke is trying to tell us here. He tells us that he has carefully investigated everything. And he writes from those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And he wants to know uh, the certainty of things. So therefore it begins in verse 5 where it says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, where there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So it sets us in terms of a very specific person, in a specific time, in a specific place in history. Okay, this is not like Star Wars, right? In the galaxy, a long, long time ago, in a place far, far away. This is not myth or legend. This is actually set in real time with real people in history. And it identifies for us Herod, king of Judea, as the main player, one of the main players of what is to happen. Now, Herod of Judea was known as also as Herod the Great, and he ruled uh, Israel from 37 BC to 4 BC. In fact, he was actually commissioned in 40 BC by the great emperor Mark Anthony and the Roman Senate. But uh, it took three years for him to return from Rome to go back to Israel to actually take his kingship that he'd been given. You know, those days there was no budget airlines, so you know he took his time to come back, and he ruled from 37 BC to 4 BC. And we're told here that there was a priest named Zechariah, and he had a wife, and they were both religious, and they were both righteous. But at the same time, they were both in a very, very sad situation. Because we're told that they were childless. They were childless because his wife, Elizabeth, was unable to conceive. But the second thing we're told is that, that they were now very, very old. Right? They were Even if she could miraculously become fertile again, they could never conceive because now Zechariah was too old. I'm sure that they would have had many tears, many prayers were shed. It reminds me of an American missionary couple that I know who were serving in Asia for many years, and I think for many years they were trying to have children, but they never did. And now they are near retirement age. So it's impossible, medically speaking, humanly speaking, for them to have children. They are now retired back in America. Now you would find it 
virtually impossible that they would have children. And this is the situation that we see here. It was an impossible situation for Zechariah and Elizabeth to have children. But then we see that there is good news. Because as we read along, we hear in verse 8 that Zechariah had been chosen by Lot to burn incense into the temple. Now we don't think this is a very big deal because we, you know, we just want to read the story and we think, oh, this probably happens every day for him, right? But if you actually have to understand history, Zechariah was one of 18,000 priests. So he had one out of 18,000 chance of actually serving in the temple. And uh, let me give you a picture of the temple in those days. Okay, it's just up here. Okay, so it's a very big structure. And inside the temple, if you look at the next picture, there's a cutout of the yellow building, is the inner area. Okay, um, next slide. Okay, click again, which is the inner area. Inside, behind that wall, is actually the, the most holy place, which uh, Zechariah would never go because he's not the high priest. But the other priests, the more normal priests, 18,000 of them, the high point of their service would be to actually go into the most inner place of the temple, where they would burn incense in preparation for God's worship. So during that day, Zechariah was given the chance to finally go in and fulfill the pinnacle of his service. And he would go into the temple. And as he was there, what would happen? But he would bump into somebody else. And that's why it says there that he was startled, he was shocked. Right? He's always thinking, you know, hey, wait a second, I'm the one who got picked, right? I'm the one who got chosen by Lord. You know, this is my, this is my once in a lifetime opportunity. What are you doing here, right? You're, you're, you're meant to be tomorrow or something or the day after. But then he realizes that actually it's an angel. We don't know why he recognizes it's an angel. Maybe it's his appearance. Maybe it's, uh, the, the realization that there's no one else that could have come in with him coming in. Because there would have been big crowds during that day, and basically they would only allow one person to come in. And he would be, as we see here, startled and gripped with fear, because whenever you meet a heavenly being, you are always filled with fear, because you realize how inadequate you are. And I think all the more for Zechariah, he would have feared judgment from this heavenly being. I think that it is a, an illusion to think that uh, when you meet someone from heaven, a heavenly angel, that you would feel, be filled with, with wonder and joy, like, you know, E.T. or something, right? you know? You'd be like, oh, wow, isn't this great? Let me take a selfie with you or something. <laughs> because actually, when you meet some agent or messenger from heaven, you are filled with a great sense of your own sinfulness and unworthiness. And he would have felt the same thing. But the angel actually comes with good news. The angel says to him in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Now we can understand, completely understand the joy and uh, happiness for Zechariah and Elizabeth, his wife. But why? Why is there so much cause for other people to rejoice? I mean, I want you to think of uh, a child somewhere, apart from your own children, which will fill you with joy and happiness. Maybe, I don't know, 
Lionel Messi or somebody, if you support Barcelona or Cristiano Ronaldo, if you support uh, Real Madrid. But but generally, we don't take much joy in rejoicing over the birth of a baby. And what's really confusing is also, why does God need to send an angel to tell Zechariah that he is going to have a baby? Do you know how many children are born every day in the world? 353,000 children are born every day in the world. And I'm sure that many of them, or some of them, would have been from people who have been trying for years to have children. But I'm sure that not many of them have angels coming to tell them before their wife conceived that they're going to have children. So what is the big deal about this child? You know, why is this child going to be a great cause of rejoicing around the world? And why is it going to be so important that God actually bothers to send an angel? Because actually when you read into the Old Testament, this rarely really happens, only maybe once or twice. And every time this happens, God sends an angel because this is a very, very significant moment. So why is it so significant here? Well, it says here in verse 13, He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or any other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now we see here the main reason why this child is so important. And it's up here, right? The three things, the three verbs which describe the mission of this child, which is called John. First of all, he's going before, he's preparing, and he's turning people back to God. Right? So if you look, the next slide, hang on, another slide, right? It says, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of power Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for God. Now this is really, really phenomenal because this person will be the herald to the Lord himself. Now, I live in uh, uh, Queenstown, right? Actually, yeah, I think my voting district is Queenstown. Right? But I actually live in Bonham, but actually Bonham is still, actually still Queenstown, I think. Across the road from me is Jerome West, I think, something like that. But anyway, do you know why Queenstown is called Queenstown? Right. It's because the Queen came to visit uh, what was then the first HDB estate in Singapore. And that's why it's called Queenstown. That's why it's not called Kingstown. It's Queenstown. And to prepare for her visit, the streets were clean, the buildings were painted, the people were ready because they were prepared for her to come. Well, in the same way, this baby, who is yet to be born, remember, with a miraculous birth, is going to come to prepare the way, not for the Queen, but for the Lord Himself. For the Lord Himself. That is the role of the child. Now, how are they going to be prepared for the coming of God? Not by the sweeping of the streets or the paintings or the buildings, but by, by turning their hearts to their children. What a weird thing to say, isn't it? Obviously, the angel doesn't speak trivia, like, you know, hey, you know, Manchester City lost yesterday or something. 
Man, the angel's not really interested in that stuff. He's just going to tell you what really matters and what really counts. And he says he's going to prepare people for the Lord God coming by turning the hearts of their fathers to their children. What does that mean? Why do they need to be to have their hearts turned to their children? Don't they naturally love their children? Now, I think that when we read the Bible, because we are reading it as Singaporeans, we don't really understand the Old Testament as much. But for the Jew who would go to the temple every week and listen to the Old Testament read to them, whenever a bit of the Bible is quoted, they would know the context in which it is quoted. It's a bit like, you know, sometimes you drive around in your car or you listen to the radio, and you have these competitions on the radio where part of the song is played, and then the person is supposed to like complete the lyrics or know the, the words of the song. Have you ever heard that before? Right, so it's a bit like um, if I say to you the words, hello. Okay, what, what, how does the, the, the word sing? Well, if, if not, obviously for the oldies, you think of Lionel Richie, right? But then for the younger people, you think of uh, somebody, you know, somebody else. Who's singing again? I can't remember. That's right, yeah, yeah. So in the same way, for the Jewish people, when they hear those words, right, turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, they immediately think of Malachi, because already it quotes Malachi. He's going to come in the, in the spirit of Malachi. And what does Malachi say? In the next slide. It says that, See, I will send the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of their children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land of a curse. So he's not just talking about fathers being reconciled with their children. He's talking about children being reconciled with their fathers. So what he's saying is this person, John, this, this herald, this messenger, this prophet, John, he's going to come and he's going to heal and repair human relationships, family relationships, where family members, fathers and children, children and mothers, mothers and their daughters will be healed. But not only that, this healing of relationships, this reconciliation of human relationships doesn't just happen on a horizontal level, a human level, but it comes as a result of our healing in a vertical level with God. Because it says, if you go back again to the next slide, says that he will actually make the disobedient turn to the wisdom of the righteous. So what's going to happen is, as people move from disobedience and ignoring God, and turning instead to being wise in holy living, in, in right living, as they get right their relationship with God, so their relationship with one another and the family will be well. And this will lead us to in turn to great rejoicing, right? Because then they will be prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus. See, I want you to think for a moment of the Christmas song. Uh, next slide. I think we, I'm not sure we sang it today. But you know how the herald angels sing? It says, Glory to the newborn King, peace on earth, and mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. You see, in that sense, there is, there is healing and reconciliation from a horizontal level, peace on earth, but also it comes because there's a reconciliation between God and sinner. See, I want you to consider for a moment exactly why it is that Luke would have written to Theophilus. He says, I want to write to you, Theophilus, because I want you to be certain of the things that you've been taught. What questions would Theophilus have? Well, Theophilus would probably have questions like, is Jesus really God? 
Is Jesus really able to bring his kingdom? Is Jesus really king? Is Jesus really making peace between God and man? And these are not just intellectual questions. I remember when I was in school, I learned things in my economics class like supply and demand, the law of supply and demand. When I was an accountant, I learned about credits and debits. But these questions never changed anybody's life in a sense. I mean, yeah, to a certain degree, supply and demand and credits and debits are important. But they're not eternal questions. These are eternal questions that Theophilus had. And Luke here was trying to show Theophilus that Jesus was real in every way and the promises that he made was real in every way. Because the birth of the messenger and the herald of Jesus was real. And it was marked with supernatural events like the angel, the inability for him to speak, the birth of a miraculous child. See, today I want to tell you that with the coming of Jesus, it's not just an intellectual thing, it is a relational thing. See, I always remember Matthew chapter 13. I never noticed this before until someone pointed it out to me in a commentary a while ago. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. You see, the coming of the king and the bringing of God's kingdom should fill us with joy. Many will rejoice at the birth, not just of Jesus, but of the coming of the herald, who heralds the Lord Jesus himself. See, in the world that we live in, we are anxious about many things. Anxious about death, anxious about suffering, anxious about the future. We look at the newspapers, we see shootings in America, bombings in Paris, we we look at everyday life and we see the pettiness and the smallness and the struggles and pain of everyday life. Where can we find true joy? We cannot find true joy in this world. You know, it's a paradox, right? Because the more you pursue joy, the harder it is for you to gain joy. You know, I want you to be joyful now. Just be joyful. Make yourself joyful. You find you can't. See, ultimately, God has made us in such a way that we only find joy if we find out that we are right with God himself. That we know our future is secure in Jesus. If we know our destiny is in heaven. See, there's a saying which says, where there is life, there is hope. Where there is life, there is hope. And it speaks of an axiom where as long as you're alive, there's hope because you can change things. But then the sad truth is, uh, there will be one day where there is no hope because we all will die in, in the end. There is a time where we will always die. But I think the deeper truth is where there is hope, there is life. Where there is hope, there is life. Because what the Bible tells us, as we open just the book of Luke, is that with the coming of Jesus the King, He brings His kingdom, and this kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And if you accept His gift, you will be part of the everlasting kingdom, and you will have a relationship with the King. You see, every day without hope is like an endless drudgery. Don't you think? Today you have a hard day, tomorrow you have a hard day, and it just gets harder and harder the older you get, because you get weaker and weaker. 
and you become more frail. I remember a partner of my accountancy firm, uh, who I would, I would have thought would have been very, very happy. One day we were sitting in the car and he told me that he measures every day by another cup of coffee and another teaspoon of coffee. That's how he measured, that's exactly what he said to me. He said, uh, another teaspoon of coffee, another day gone. I think, wow, maybe I don't want to become a partner of accounting fund. <laughs> sounds very depressing. <laughs> but with the coming of Jesus, with the coming of John who heralds Jesus, it actually tells us that God has finally, after all these years, fulfilled his promises to his people in Israel. And that the king, God himself in Jesus, came into the world to bring his kingdom so that people can finally be saved once and for all. That the expectations of centuries have finally been met. Now, I wonder whether you truly can believe that. I wonder whether you struggle to believe that. I went to a talk on Tuesday by this Christian apologist called John Lennox, and he shared about how he was in Oslo or Norway or Scandinavia, Spain, somewhere, I don't know where, but he was, he was sharing about uh, how he was having an argument with this, uh, this atheist professor. And I think this atheist professor said, oh, you know, why are we even talking about these things? You know, Jesus is like Santa Claus. Who believes in Jesus? And this John Lennox made a good point. He spoke to the audience of a few, uh, I think he said about a thousand university students, and he said, how many of you came to believe in Santa Claus as an adult? And nobody put up their hands. He said, how many of you came to believe in Jesus Christ as an adult? And several hundred people put up their hands. And then he turned to the atheist uh, professor and he said, well, you can't put Santa Claus and Jesus Christ on the same level because one is obviously a myth and a legend, but one is a historical figure in history who purports to be the saviour of the world who brings in his kingdom. He is not a wish fulfillment, but rather he is a person in history. And when he comes into this world, he expects us to turn to him. Right? That's, why, that's the whole point of John coming to the world, to prepare people to turn to God and to receive him as God. Because to not receive Jesus as God and Savior is to remain in disobedience. But rather God wants us to turn to righteousness instead. He says that John the Baptist was here to turn people from disobedience to the wisdom of righteousness. See, to be wise in this world is actually to be prepared for the coming of God, his king and his kingdom. Now, I often have a discussion with a friend who I care a lot about, and he always tries to convince me that he's a good person. Repeatedly, week after week, and I meet up with him, he's always telling me how good he is. But I always wonder, how can you be such a good person if you cannot recognize your own creator God, your own sustainer God who comes into this world? Can you really be a good person? The person who ignores his father or his mother who brought him into this world? Well, the Bible tells us that the wise person, the obedient person, the, the person who lives rightly, the righteous person, he will be ready for God coming into this world. And the Bible tells us very clearly that that Luke has done all the hard work, he's followed where the evidence has gone. And even before the coming of Jesus, God was already making clear, getting us ready 
to accept the king who is coming. I want to leave you one quote as you reflect on the joy, the true joy of Christmas. There's this philosopher called uh, Soren Kierkegaard. He said there are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true, and the other is to refuse to believe what is true. And I think that for many people, when they come to Christmas, uh, they believe the latter. They refuse to believe what the Bible says in every way, in every way possible, with all good intentions, uh, that indeed Jesus is real. He is true. That He truly is the King and God who brings His kingdom. And that He has sent a messenger, John the Baptist, to prepare his way. And he wants us to be to be welcoming, uh, to be accepting, and to be receiving God's King, Jesus Christ. And that's why Christmas is such a joyous occasion. But unless you know Jesus relationally, you cannot share that joy because you cannot have the confidence of going to his kingdom. So I'd like to make for you the invitation today to really make Christmas a time of true joy not because of presents, or family lunch, or celebration of a Christmas tree, or some event, but to really, really know the true joy of Christmas found in the coming of Jesus, God's Savior, and God's King. That's why I in prayer. Dear Fathers, we come before you today. We pray for ourselves that as we reflect on your word, we will know that with the coming of John the Baptist, with the miraculous birth of this baby, miraculously pronounced by the angel, that your King Jesus has come, and that with his coming comes the kingdom of God and the universal invitation for each and every one of us to enter into that heavenly eternity. Dear Father, help us to see that our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. That without actually knowing our Maker, without actually knowing our destiny, there can be no true joy, no enduring peace in our heart. And we just pray that with your testimony coming to us and speaking to us clearly and transparently through the Gospel of Luke, that this Christmas we will truly know and recognize Jesus. And that in accepting him, we will enter your kingdom. And that we will truly be able to enjoy what Christmas is meant to be. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.